Welcome into Home Court Press. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined, as always, by McCade Pearson. We've got some special bonus episodes planned for you, a little mini-series talking about eight and a half different teams. And what we're doing here with this is just comparing these teams to the Utah Jazz. So, McCade, do you want to give a little bit of a primer as what we're going to be talking about over these eight episodes and what fans can look for? Yeah, I think we have five or six teams from this decade and then three teams from the previous decade. So all the teams are within the last 20 years, uh, going back to the 0176ers. We're talking Pistons, Mavericks, Magic, Warriors. Um, but we're just going to spend 30, 40 minutes with these different people. A lot of these people covered the teams we're going to talk to them about, or at the very least, we're very involved, hardcore fans. And we're just going to say, hey, what was it like then? What went well? Why did you win a championship? Why didn't you win a championship? Did you make a trade at the deadline? Did that matter at all? should be a lot of fun. I keep that for those the next few weeks. Not only are we bringing in some outside voices and people who don't watch the Jazz 72 or 82 games a year, but we're bringing in people who... They watch their own teams just like we do. They come at it from the fan perspective. We've got some people like Marilyn Dubinsky and Sean Corp from the Detroit Pistons and San Antonio Spurs who grew up watching their teams and they were fans when these teams won their titles and now they are beat writers and they're covering the teams professionally. So we get two different perspectives. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be worth your time to listen to, as McCade said, probably 30 to 40 minutes an episode, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. But without further ado, here's Zach Oliver as we talk the 2008-9 Orlando Magic Eastern Conference Finals representative. This was going to be our year. But then I saw them play. Welcome into Home Court Press Utah Jazz Talk. This is your host, Brian Priest, joined, as always, by McCade Pearson as we continue our Jazz Pod Comparison Series. How you doing, McCade? We are good. This has been a lot of fun. Excited for another episode. An episode, I think, is towards the top of both of our lists of likely comparisons for the Jazz. Um, kind of the first team to go with a dominant big man and then just three-point shooters everywhere. So it should be a lot of fun. And we are joined, as we've been doing with all of the other podcasts, we've been trying to get writers and fans of these teams that we want to compare the Jazz to to come and join us. Today we are blessed with the appearance of Zach Oliver coming on the pod. So, Zach, first I want to thank you for joining us, and then if you could just you know, give us a, a rundown of your fanhood with the Magic and why when this opportunity came up to talk about the 2009 Orlando Magic and compare them to the Jazz why you wanted to you know, jump in and do this. Yeah. Um, I, I was actually born out on the West coast. I was born in California, but I, uh, I grew up in, in Florida and, you know, watching the magic was one of the first things that I really remember from my childhood at this point still. And it was those tracing Brady led teams in the early two thousands where T Mac was just unstoppable. And it just kind of hooked me, I think. And, uh, ever since then I was, uh, I was a big fan, and I think that you know once I started writing and covering the team, maybe my my fanhood lost a slight uh, slight edge to it, uh, just you know just because of being having to be more impartial. But you know that 2009 team, I was let's see high school, so I was 16, 17 when that was uh, when they were making that run, and you know it was really memorable. 
you know, you know, Dwight was completely dominant, and I, I still think that the year that Derrick Rose won the MVP and Dwight didn't is a sham. Uh, Dwight should have won that MVP. Derrick Rose didn't deserve that. But that's a, another topic for another <laughs> day. And then uh, Guards you know, always that, win that, the MVP. They do, but Dwight was so damn good that year. And, you know, that 2019 was really special. I think it, along with those, you know, seven seconds or less Suns teams, really changed the, the overall landscape of the NBA. But, you know, as much as an impact that 2019 had, the next year, I think, had an even bigger impact. That 2010 team, if Vince Carter could have made some free throws against the Celtics, you know, they probably beat the Celtics, and who knows what happens after that. They'd already beaten the Cavaliers the year before. So it's tough, but I think that uh, I think we're talking about the right era of Magic Basketball. You know, Shaq was great. Penny was great. T-Mac was great, but he had no help. Yeah, Those Dwight teams were the, the heyday of Magic Basketball, I think. And, you know, we are chatting about this a little bit before we started recording. This Magic team, I feel like, has a lot of similarities with this new this year's Jazz. Well, let's uh, let's start with just kind of a refresher for the listeners uh, to what this Magic team was, what they did in the playoffs, and start in the second round where they knock off the defending champion Celtics, and that was a really good Boston team. It was still, uh, I, if I remember right, I think KG was still healthy. This was before he hurt his knee. I feel like it was in 2010 that he hurt his knee. Um, this, is, this was the year that Kevin Garnett was hurt, actually. Oh, it is the year um, that he was hurt. Okay. Yeah, and I, I think that that was one of the things that really helped the Magic in that series, um, was not having to deal with Kevin Garnett. And then, you know, the next year they had to deal with KG, and, you know, that coupled with some free throw issues and just, you know, the Celtics making a few more plays, the Magic ended up losing that series. But, you know, that, you know, I think getting... The Celtics without Kevin Garnett was was very fortuitous for the Magic. Yeah, well, and and that's something that I think this year is is pretty likely that we're going to see in the playoffs is there's going to be a team who suffers a, an injury or some type of an illness, something like that. You know, an unprecedented season with COVID going on. You have no idea what's going to be happening this summer. And sometimes for a lot of teams, you have to have luck strike so that you can reach your full potential. And that's that's something that this Magic team benefited from. Um, I remember t- very specifically, I've always been a huge LeBron James fan. So I remember watching this series with the Magic and Cavs. I didn't think the Magic had a chance going into this series. And then it was pretty early in game one watching that. I realized... Wow, Cleveland has no depth. They don't have a chance to stop this Orlando team. And they Cleveland ended up winning two games in that series, one on a miraculous LeBron James buzzer beater. And but really the the Orlando Magic were far, far better than Cleveland that season. Yeah, I mean that you know, you touch on it. That Magic team was really deep compared to that Cleveland team. You know, I mean, they could go ten deep pretty much. You know, they, let's see, 2009. So Jameer Nelson was hurt with the shoulder injury that he suffered against uh, the Mavs in February, right after he was selected as an all-star. Mm-hmm. So then they acquired Rafer Alston right before the trade deadline from Houston. So they're starting Rafer Alston, uh, Michael Petras, Hito Turkoglu, Richard Lewis, and Dwight. 
And then they had uh, Grandpa Anthony Johnson coming off the bench at point guard. They had J.J. Redick in his third year. Oh, man, who else was on that team? They had Marchin Gortat at the backup center. Marchin had a huge game in the first-round series after Dwight was suspended against the Sixers um, for game six, I believe it was, the uh, the closeout game that they won in Philadelphia. You know, Dwight got suspended for an elbow the previous game, and Gortat came in and had a really good game. That team just was deep, and they could match up really well with pretty much anything that you threw at them, which I think was was the big thing that helped them against that LeBron-led team. Yeah, I think their ability to match up and versatility, they had so many players on this, Rahito Turkoglu, Richard Lewis, uh, guys on the perimeter that were just huge contributors. And so as we start talking about the comparison here, the first thing that draws me to this Orlando Magic team is the three-point shooting, and McCade mentioned it off at of the top, where this was really the first team to design an entire offense around a dominant big man in Dwight Howard and Four players on the perimeter. All four could handle the ball. All four could shoot the ball pretty well. The Jameer Nelson injury hurt a lot because he was a far better shooter than Rafer Alston. But I actually want to save some of the Alston talk for a little bit later. Um, but it, it was a it was a magic team that just revolved around shooting the ball and then Dwight Howard getting rebounds and blocking shots defensively and getting a, a couple back-to-the-back touches, back-to-the-basket touches, because you got to keep Dwight happy, even though he's not a good post player. And uh, then the other thing that stood out to me as I was looking at this Magic team is the rebounding. They were a very, very good rebounding team. They were first in the league in defensive rebounds, third overall rebounding-wise. So, I mean, talk about those aspects of the Magic, and if you if you do see similarities between them and this Jazz team. Yeah, I think that the biggest difference between Rudy Gobert and Dwight, and, you know, Dwight never really had this super refined post game that, you know, a guy like a Shaq did. But the thing with Dwight was he could still, you know, make some of those moves, and you had to respect that if you were at the defense, right? So I think that that's one of the biggest differences because Rudy's game isn't necessarily, you know, a post-up guy. Rudy gets a lot of dunks. He gets a lot of lobs. Um, a lot of stuff out of the pick and roll. Yes, Dwight did some of that, but he could also post up guys. Even if his, you know, his post move game was, you know, maybe a little less than ideal. It was kind of one dimensional. Um, but I think that year was when Dwight really started to take a step forward as a post passer. You know, whenever he got double teamed, he was able to find the right guy and find the open shooter, and that really opened things up a lot for them. So, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, one thing, too, when I think about it, like, the, the big thing that that Magic team missed was that guy that could go off the dribble and really go get his shot. You know, that's what I think that 2010 team had, because Vince Carter, yes, he was, you know, at the really far tail end of his prime, but Vince could go get his own shot if he wanted to. I feel like that's what this Jazz team has a little bit more with Donovan Mitchell, who can create a little bit for himself. Go get his own shot. Um, so I, I think that, you know, looking at it, maybe, excuse me, um, this year's Jazz team is kind of like the 2010 Magic a little bit more, I think. And okay. last year's Jazz team was like that 2009 team. But it's 
it's weird because I think that both of those 2009-2010 Magic teams have aspects of this jazz team because you have a guy like Joe Ingles who kind of plays that Hito Turkoglu role who can, you know, he's a point forward, can knock down the outside shot, you know, puts stress on defense. You have your stretch four kind of guy in Boyan Bogdanovich. That's what the Magic had Richard Lewis. You've got, you know, your Royce O'Neal, who's more of a defender, but he can knock down the three. That's kind of what Mike, uh, Michael Petrus was. And then you've got Mitchell and Connolly. I think those are the two biggest differences with the Magic versus the Jazz. Is the backcourt of the Jazz is, I would say, considerably better than what the Magic backcourt was with Jumir Nelson in 2010, I should say, with mm-hmm. Nelson and Carter, or even in 2009 with... Um, with Ray Ferrolson and then Michael Petrus. And one thing that Orlando backcourt had over this, the Jazz, aside from Jameer Nelson, who was only six feet, but the, the Magic had a lot more length, I felt like, on the perimeter than this Jazz team does. And that's something that I think at times can hold the Jazz back and limit them in some ways, but then it also gives them athletic advantages on on the other end of the floor so what benefit was the the length that that magic team had and do you think it's something that the jazz relative lack of size is something that could negatively impact them going into the postseason maybe i think that the the biggest thing that the length that the magic had you know the, the biggest advantage was they could switch a lot of things um you know, even when you're playing that Cavs team that had, let's see, 2009, so they would have had Mo Williams, probably Larry Hughes, LeBron, Zildrinus Ogalskis, and Danielle Marshall, I believe, starting. Um, you know, that that's a team that you can switch a lot of things with. You can switch kind of those 1-4, 1-3 pick-and-rolls a little bit and, and still have some decent matchups if you're the Magic. You know, you had Michael Pizzo starting at shooting guard who was 6-6. Six, six. You had Ray Ferrolson at 6'2", which, you know, isn't terrible size for a point guard. So you had that kind of switchability that I think maybe the Jazz are going to lack a little bit when you get put in those, like, 1-4, 1-5, or even the 1-3-2-3 pick-and-rolls because you have a slightly smaller backcourt with Mitchell and um, Mike Connolly. So yeah. I think that that's definitely something that you have to worry about. But offensively, I feel like those two put a little bit more strain on the opposing defense than the Ray Ferrolson and, and Michael Petrus uh, parent did. So now I kind of wanted to switch gears and look at the uh, the trade deadline acquisitions. And I know, McCade, you, you're an outspoken guy on Twitter, and you like to suggest, um, you know, earlier today you said that today would be a great day for the Jazz to either re-sign or extend Mike Conley or trade him. And I know that you weren't trying to suggest that they actually trade Mike Conley. It was just, hey, let's get a deal done. But we've talked a lot on the podcast about whether or not the Jazz needed to go out and make a big rotation-changing move. And, you know, obviously we saw yesterday they signed Ursan Ilyasova. So that rotation-changing move is probably out, out of the window. But we see with this Orlando Magic team in 2008 2009, uh, right up against the trade deadline, Jameer Nelson hurts his shoulder. So, McKay, do you do you kind of want to ask about Ray for Alston and just what that impact was? Yeah, so Jameer Nelson goes down February 2nd. Um, I'm assuming you're not talking about the Keith Bogans for Ty Lue trade that happened on February 5th. 
Um, I'm assuming you're talking more about the Ripper Alston trade that has a couple other interesting pieces. Kyle Lowry goes from Memphis to Houston. The future first round pick Orlando sends out to Memphis ends up becoming Damari Carroll, who we all love in Jazz Nation. Um, but yeah, so this is very similar to the Theo Ratliff injury in 01 when the 76ers go out and get to Kambi Matumbo, where your hands kind of forced a little bit and say, okay, we're in the middle of a great year, we got to do something, and so you kind of try and replace an injured player right away. But the 76ers case, they traded away Theo Ratliff for that player, and the Magic held on to Jameer Nelson while getting his replacement. Um, I believe the kind of consensus was Jameer Nelson was going to be out for the season, but since they made it to the finals, he kind of snuck up a little bit and snuck back into the, I don't even know how I want to say the rotation, because he came off the bench. I mean, yeah, into the rotation. What was the mindset going into that trade deadline? Was it we need to replace Jermaine Nelson? Was it we've already lost this season? Or was it we need to make a move? I, I think it was a mix of we need to find a player that can replace Jameer, but we also need to go and get somebody that's more of a floor general, right? You know, they had Anthony Johnson, they Traded for Ty Lue, who was, you know, at the tail end of his career, and he gave him a couple of okay games. But really, they needed somebody that could still make an impact. And, you know, with the likes of Hito Turkoglu and Rashard Lewis around Dwight, and even Courtney Lee, who was a, uh, in his rookie year that year, who I completely forgot was on that team, um, you know, you had enough guys that could get you enough that if you just had a pass-first point guard who could set things up, knock down that open shot every once in a while, I think that that's really what they needed. And that's what they went and got in Ray for all. So, you know, he wasn't a guy that needed the ball to be successful. He could play off the ball a little bit. He would set guys up perfectly. So I think that overall the move was, hey, we can still contend if we go and make this move, you know. They, they were only carrying two point guards on the roster at the time when Jameer went down. They only had him and then Avery Johnson. You know, Courtney Lee could handle the ball a little bit. They had Hito, who really played point forward all season, so he could handle the ball. But they still needed that guy who was going to be a, a starting caliber point guard. So, you know, they went and made that move that ended up, I would say, leading to their success in the second half of the season itself. Yeah, Jazz fans are pretty familiar with Ray for Alston's game, uh, considering we played him 12 games in the playoffs in the 07 and 08 Jazz, Trace McGrady, Yalming Rocket Series. I still know him as Skip to my Lou. That's who he's always going to be in my mind from those Antoine videos. He was awesome. Yeah, he was a lot of fun. And, you know, underrated thing about that 2010 Magic team, um, they actually had Jason Williams that year too. So they went from skip to Molly one year to white chocolate. I mean, <laughs> you, you get two really flashy passers and that was after Jason Williams had been retired for a couple of years after he played with the Kings. You know, he was a uh, fun Jason Williams fact. He likes to play pickup games down here in Orlando at the RDV, which is, you know, a sports complex that was founded by the late magic owner, Richard DeVos. And that's where, for the longest time before they moved it to the practice gym at the Amway Center before they stopped doing it a few years ago, that they would do the Orlando Summer League at. And Jason Williams would go in there and just show guys up. It was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, he had always wanted to play for the Magic, and he got that opportunity. And he was on a really good team that probably should have gone further than it did. 
I wanted to ask you, as we look at this, one thing that I, I find kind of interesting is the style of play in the league. Um, looking at the 2008-9 Magic and some of their season stats, I mentioned the three-point shooting near the, the top of the episode. And the Magic this year, they were second in the league in threes made. They were third in the league in threes attempted, second in three-point percentage. But they were they were just attempting far more threes than almost any other team in the league. And so their style of play was just so different. And I, I wonder what the perception was from the national media, from fans from other teams that you noticed about the Orlando Magic. And you know, were there, were there questions? Because I know there's a lot of questions with this Jazz team about how sustainable is the three-point shooting. Are they going to be able to shoot at the same percentage as they have been? Are they going to be able to get the same amount of threes off that they have been? Were those questions asked about this Magic team? Yeah, I, I think that some of those were. You know, this was, you know, really the, the first year where the Magic really changed things a ton, I think. You know, we'd seen it a little bit the year before when they'd acquired Richard Lewis via free agency, that they were really going to focus on shooting the three ball. But this 2008-2009 team took it, I feel like, to another level. You know, they were second in three-pointers made on the season, second in three-pointers attempted, seventh as a team in three-point percentage. And they, re- they, they really played that one-in, four-out mentality that, you know, space the floor, open things up, and, you know, I think the underrated thing about that team was, you know, even though they were so heavily reliant on shooting the three ball, they were also able to break down the defense with that spacing and then get those easy buckets for Dwight, which then just kept, I think, building different layers to the offense at the end of the day. So, you know, yes, they changed a lot of things by by being so heavily reliant on shooting the three. And, yes, there were questions because, I, you know, Ultimately, we still have these conversations now, right? We had these conversations, I think, last year with the Bucks and Giannis. You know, once we get into that more half-court set and things get bogged down, are you still going to be able to find those open shooters? Yeah, yeah. That was the thing. That was the thing that the Magic did, and I think that one of the, the biggest things with that was just how dominant Dwight was down low. You know, you had to bring a double team on him, and ultimately, that ended up leaving somebody open, even if it was in the far corner, he could kick it out and they could, you know, throw enough swing passes to find the open guy. And if not, they're still finding somebody that's scrambling and finding an open lane to get to the basket or they're getting back to the white and getting an easy bucket. So I, I think that there were definitely questions about how sustainable their play was, but they answered those and we saw what happened. You know, they, they, you know, aside from game one, I feel like in the finals that year, you know, game two, their Courtney Lee layup missed away from tying that series 1-1. Yeah. They come back and win game three. Game four, Derek Fisher hits the dagger of all dagger three-pointers with, you know, little time left. You know, that series could easily, I feel like, switch to being 3-1 magic, 2-2. Like, if it's 2-2, yes, you still have two games left in L.A., but that, that changes things a ton for a team that, had success on the road in the playoffs that year. 
Yeah, 2-2 versus being down 3-1 makes a, a world of difference, not just in your game planning, but psychologically. It's so difficult to go into a fifth game being down 3-1 and feel like you legitimately have a chance to win the series. Whereas if it's 2-2, I mean, it's best out of three at that point, and it makes such a huge difference in how a team prepares. Yeah, it definitely does. And, you know, that Magic team, if I remember correctly, I'm going to see if I can pull up the, the numbers right now. They were pretty good on the road that year. So they, you know, they were able to take care of business wherever they went. So, you know, I, I definitely, do I think that they're going to go into LA and win two out of three? Probably not, but if they can get, you know, they get that game five, they're not down three, one, they're down two, two. That's like, you know, you're going into the final round of a championship fight and you're like, all right, I've got, I've got a chance here still. And you know you're not you're not throwing those haymakers that you have to do when you're down three one. So I think that that just that changes so many aspects of that series. I want to talk about the one of the biggest comparisons for me is obviously the Orlando defense being built around such a dominant big man in Dwight Howard. And you had talked earlier and, and mentioned about Dwight how he really had some improved passing out of the post in this season and was able to find open shooters when defenses would double team and things like that. Could you take a couple minutes and compare Dwight of Dwight in his prime with his Orlando magic teams, 08, 09, 09, 10 to Rudy Gobert today. And just what do they have in common? What's different about the two? When you were talking about the passing, that's one thing I know I talk to McCade all the time about is how underrated of a passer. I think Rudy is, but how do those two compare in their primes? Ooh. This is probably going to show a little bit of my ignorance because I, I admittedly haven't watched as much jazz basketball, you know, because of the, the time difference and not actually don't have league pass right now because um, my provider doesn't offer it and I haven't bought it online for a couple of years. Um, well, well, we can help you with the Rudy knowledge. No worries there. Yeah, I, I think that the thing with Dwight was. You know, like I said before, he had a slightly more refined post game. You know, I feel like whenever I watch the Jazz and I watch Rudy, he's not really that back to the basket guy. You know, he'll catch at that ten to fifteen foot range, and he will be looking to pass a little bit more than Dwight was. Um, I think that that's one big difference because that kind of keeps defenses a little bit more honest. If you're, you know, likely to, you know, put your back to the basket and try to make that move. Even if you end up passing it out of that double team that comes, you know that opens things up, you know, for other players on offense. I think that's one big thing, and then I think also defensively, they're slightly different players. Um, I think Rudy is a guy that is going to switch a little bit more and is more willing to kind of chase guys around the perimeter than Dwight was. You know, Dwight was very much a he'll lag back on the pick and roll. And he'll just protect her and he'll block every shot that comes his way if he can. Mm-hmm. Rudy, Rudy does that, but I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like the Jazz are a little bit more open to switching things because Rudy's a little bit more mobile on the perimeter and can kind of switch and take on those guys and you're, limit some things out there as well. You're 100% right. I, there, was, there was a time where Rudy switched out onto a guard was a big liability. There's that... GIF, GIF, whatever people want to call it, that goes around where Steph it puts a few moves on Rudy and spins him and, and then hits a shot over him. But Rudy isn't 
isn't that same defender anymore. He's very mobile on the perimeter. He he plays uh, disciplined defense. He's not just trying to block every shot. He's really he he knows he's seven foot one and he's got the longest the the biggest arm span in NBA history. So he could just stick a hand up and cause enough trouble with guys. And then you see other situations where he's improved to the degree that even if he does get turned around, the uh, Mavericks game from last season where I. I believe it was. Remind me who it was, McCade. No, it was Delon Wright. Where yeah, he got switched out on a screen and kind of got turned around to get 270 degrees and was able to recover and save the game on a game-winning block. Rudy's just been fantastic on perimeter players this year um, and guards them a lot more than people think. I mean, the whole purpose of a pick and roll is to take away the player being screened and make it a two-on-one, and that puts Gobert to switch onto the guard as well as protect the rim and the lob to the big man. And he does both playing one-on-two so well that uh, it makes him just an amazing defender against guards, whether it is on that pick-and-roll or if he gets switched out in isolation. We saw just a couple weeks ago LeBron James got switched on him and took a 22-footer and bricked it and didn't score and it made it all over Twitter because Rudy flipped a little and he broke his ankles and all that fun stuff. But at the end of the day, LeBron James didn't want to try and drive in on Rudy Gobert and took a bad jumper because of it. Yeah, I think instinctually, too, Rudy is just a slightly better defender than Dwight was. I think, you know, Dwight won defense player of the year three years in a row because he was so good at protecting the rim because he was a very aggressive um, rim defender. He kind of reminded me a little bit of like a a Tyson Chandler, you know, the the kind of guy that would go for so many blocks. I feel like Rudy goes for a lot of blocks, but at the same time can just use his length to alter those shots, and that changes so much for that team defensively. And I think a a big difference there in in exactly that is that Dwight Howard, for much of his career, has been prone to foul trouble because he's so aggressive in going for so many blocks, where Rudy is focused on playing the position defense and just, hey, Blocking a shot or being seven foot one and in a guy's way is almost as effective as getting that blocked shot, and it's something that keeps Rudy out of foul trouble. It keeps him on the floor in the most intense moments of games, and he doesn't have to worry about you know six minutes left. He's got five fouls, and and how is he going to get through the rest of the game? Because he rarely ever is in foul trouble. Yeah, that that's definitely a big thing that I, I think that you know. It helped Dwight at times being so aggressive defensively, but it hurt him, I think, you know, even more than, uh, than maybe it helped him sometimes. You know, he would get into that foul trouble. And, you know, those 2009, 2010 teams, you, you could make up for that a little bit because you had March and Gortat as his backup. But at the end of the day, Gortat wasn't the same guy defensively as Dwight was. And that, you know, that ends up changing teams a lot which I think is one of the nice things with the Jazz, this, especially this year because they have Derek Favors back, is you know Rudy goes to the bench. You bring in Derek Favors. He's a different kind of defender, but at the same time, you're not losing that much defensively when you go from Rudy to Favors. Now, if I'm wrong, please correct me, but I, I have always thought of, of Favors as a really good post defender and a guy who could – protect the rim, maybe not at the same level that uh, Rudy does, but he's going to still keep the defense at that high level. Yeah, Derek's an interesting topic because the there's a common misconception from people who don't watch him very often, even people who do watch most of the Jazz games, that 
Derek has slipped defensively, but I think if if you watch the Jazz games, what's actually going on is Rudy is so dominant defensively that teams can't get to the basket, and any time he's off of the floor, every opponent against the Jazz makes a conscious effort to try and get layups and try and get shots at the basket. So Favors just gets attacked at an incredibly high level, and it's not that his defense has slipped at all, at least in my mind, but... I think Favors is a great defensive player. He he does he plays very good positional defense. He's a strong guy that can defend pretty much any center that likes to play with their back to the basket. And it's just the fact that Rudy's so good that just by proxy it makes Favors look bad. Yeah, we've seen we haven't seen it this year, but in past years we've seen the Jazz put a Favors Gobert lineup on the court and they'll put Favors on Corey Anthony Towns or Anthony Davis whatever elite big another team has, and that allows Rudy Gobert to still guard the rim and not have to worry about Anthony Davis or Carlton Towns or whoever it may be. Um, I do want to point out, I was thinking, uh, just as you guys were talking, and how dominant Dwight Howard was defensively back in the day, and still is. He's still doing pretty good for the Lakers and now Philly this year. Um, but we, on this entire series, we've talked about eight teams, five from the past decade, and then three from the 2000s. And the three teams we talked about in the 2000s featured the Kemba Mutombo on the 0176ers, Ben Wallace on the 04 Pistons, and now Dwight. And according to Vegas and where we're at, and we'll see what happens in the next two, three months, but Rudy Gobert is going to join those three centers as the only four players to win three Defensive Player of the Year awards. And so this is going to show how rare they are and how great of defenders those guys are. You probably throw in Tim Duncan or Akeem, and those are your top five defenders of all time, are Dikembe, Ben, Dwight, Rudy, and you can argue about the fifth, um, especially at the rim. And so having that guy to just shut down the paint on offense and defense allows the perimeter and the three-point shooting on the offensive end to be so dominant. And so it's one. Of, this, is why, this is why it's one of my favorite comparisons we're going to do is because the similarities between Dwight Howard and Rudy Gobert are so strong. Um, and just the next evolution of that Magic team is the Jazz team we're seeing right now. Um, as you mentioned, the Joe Ingles, Turk Luke comparisons, and we can go on and on and on. It's just a fantastic comparison showing how you go from the stretch four era of Richard Lewis to the we're just going to play four wings slash guards instead. So I kind of ramble a little bit there, but does that answer your question? Uh, I think that that's definitely a good point there because you know I, I think that that's the next evolution of the NBA right now. Before it was, you know, we're getting all these stretch forwards. We're getting your, you know, Rashard Lewis who switched to the four. Your Ryan Anderson types. And now it's okay. We're gonna we're playing smaller to where you know the Lakers are gonna play probably a lot of their playoff minutes with Anthony Davis at center. You know, Davis is still big, but he's a power forward. You know, he's not super comfortable playing there. You know, then you've got LeBron playing power forward. So you're starting to see some of these these teams. You know, go a little smaller. The Bucks going with like Giannis at center, Chris Middleton at power forward. You know, we're just we're starting to see that that shift a little bit to where you know systematically and how they play, they're the same because they're so reliant on a three point shot and they're using that dominant defensive big in the center. But just like how they're building the team around that center is slightly different. I think. Um, I think the one question that I have for you guys regarding this Jazz team is. How much of an impact on last year's team was not having Derek Favors? If, if they kept Favors, does that maybe change how that team is last season? Yeah, I'll answer really brief, and then I'll throw it to you, McCade. But uh, if you talk to the Jazz front office, when they ended up trading Derek Favors, it was 
only because just cap wise, they knew that they they had to do that. It wasn't because they wanted right. to, and they knew it would have a huge impact on their defense. I don't think they fully realized how impactful it was going to be and how bad their second unit was going to be because of it. But this team, they missed Derek Favors the entire season. From the first game of the year, you could tell that the second unit was a problem. And they made a lot of adjustments in December by going out and getting Jordan Clarkson and moving on from Jeff Green and benching Ed Davis for Tony Bradley. But losing let, Derek let Favors just, made let all me the just difference. Jump in here real year. quick. Jeff Green is never the answer. Never. McCade loves Jeff Green. But <laughs> that's that's my answer. I'll throw it over to I you for that love one, McCade. Jeff Green. No, Jeff Green did spend some time in Orlando, didn't he? He did. He spent one year and was, uh, I mean, he was not terrible. Recently, he, right? Yeah, I guess it was probably the year before he played for the Jazz, actually. Um, he had, you know, that, that cup of tea with the Magic, and he kind of felt like that guy who would come in. He'd have those, like, random, like, two or three games a year where he'd have 25 to 30, and then the rest of the time he was just like, all right, he's out here. He's like, Dribbling and shooting a little bit. He's playing basketball, but he's not really adding much to the team. Yeah, we only had him for uh, 30 games, so I think we only got one of those good games. Um, but yeah, going back to the Derek Favors thing, the Jazz, yeah, the Jazz uh, bench really did struggle last year. Whether you want to blame him on the backup center position or not, I think it's kind of unfair. Kind of like you mentioned, you don't have Dwight Howard as good as Marcin Gortat is. Same idea last year when Rudy Gobert was off the floor. Tony Bradley just wasn't Rudy Gobert, and so you didn't have the perimeter defenders to make up for it or weren't used to playing legit, don't have a defensive player of the year behind me defense. Um, so bringing favors back after you virtually traded him away for Boyan, um, theoretically anyway, was a big, big, big move. And it's really worked out this year. This year the Jazz are still dominating with Gobert on the court like they have for the past six years, seven years. Um, but when he goes to the bench, the Jazz are playing pretty even basketball. I actually think right now they're like a plus one or two. And so when Gobert can build an eight-point lead and then go sit for six minutes and then come back and there's still an eight-point lead, then he can turn that into a 12-point lead and start to play catch-up. Because last year in Game 7, for example, uh, Rudy Gobert was like a plus six or seven, but the Jazz lost the seven minutes he sat by like ten points, and that's why they got eliminated by the Nuggets. So having that backup center, that's a legit starting center, caliber player has been huge for the Jazz this year. You kind of see it about the Magic. Marcin Gortat was still pretty young and had some issues there, but having a center that can be a top 35 or 40 center in the league is very, very valuable. That Nuggets team last year also had like, a, you know, a golden horseshoe or something in their in their back pockets. Cause they, yeah, they that whole series. That series, and then, you know, when they played the Clippers... It just felt like they overcame every big deficit that they faced. And that just that doesn't happen. So, that, you know, maybe it was no. a level aspect. Maybe it was something else. But that, uh, that team had a lot of luck on their side, I think. Zach, we've been finishing these shows with every, each one of our guests and just posing the question. You know, obviously, this is a comparison pod. So I first want to ask uh, what you think about the comparison between the, the 2008-9 Orlando Magic or even the 2010 Magic and this current Jazz team. Is it a fair comparison? Is it way off base? And then just get your overall thoughts on the Jazz this year. I know before we started recording, you mentioned that you had the Jazz picked last season to go to the finals. So 
What are your thoughts on him this year from from the little bit that you have seen, and how do you expect the rest of the season will play out for them? Yeah, you know, I, I think that this Jazz team is probably a little bit closer to that 2010 Magic team, and, you know, I, I would be lying if I said that I was perfect with my Jazz history. Obviously, those the Carl Malone and John Stockton teams of the 90s were probably some of the best that they had. But you, you guys would be able to tell me better. Is this, you know, do you feel like this is the most talented team that they've had from top to bottom, or is it one of those teams from the 90s? Personally, I'm worried about the third layer of depth, but theoretically, if you're healthy, you don't need that third layer, and our top eight is as good as any top eight in the league, maybe over the past couple of seasons. Um, Favors, Jordan Clarkson, Joe Ingles are all fantastic at what they do. And so if the Jazz can stay healthy and keep their top eight or nine intact, then I do think top to bottom this is probably one of the better Jazz teams we've seen, maybe up there. The Darren Williams era, at one point you had six one-time All-Stars as their top six players with Mehmet Kerr and Kyle Korver and all those guys getting their All-Star Cup of Coffee at some point. But yeah, those Stockton Malone teams, the reason they lost in 98 is they didn't have a fifth starter. They could not find a starting center to save their lives. They tried like three of them in that series alone. They tried small ball. It was a disaster. And so this team, top to bottom, is for sure probably the most talented team um, at least at the spot seven, eight, nine, and so on. I, and I agree with McCade. I I'm 36, so I those 97, 98 Jazz teams were right in my wheelhouse. I was 14, 15 years old watching them. You know, right when you really start developing fanhood and become super passionate. And yeah, those Stockton and Malone teams, they had the incredible top end talent, the Hall of Famers, of course, but they didn't have depth. They didn't have a center. You couldn't trust Greg Ostertag. Um, I think that the Darren Williams, Carlos Boozer, Mehmet Kerr, Andre Kirilenko jazz teams were probably the the deepest jazz teams of my life, but they didn't have the top-end talent. They didn't have the Hall of Famers the uh, late 90s jazz teams did, and that this current jazz team, I think, has. I think this current jazz team from 1 through 12 is probably the best iteration of Utah jazz basketball that I've seen because they're incredibly deep. I think that Rudy, because of the way the Basketball Hall of Fame is set up, he might already be a Hall of Famer, and Donovan Mitchell could has the potential in his fourth season to become a Hall of Fame type of a player, and then they have incredible depth through at least nine, maybe into the 10th the spot on the roster with uh, the Ersan Ilyasova signing, and then they have other guys that they can still depend on. They've got Mia Oni that they can bring out and play defensively if somebody's struggling or if there's an injury. Uh, they just they have so many more options and so much more versatility than jazz teams that I remember from the past. I feel like when the Magic played the uh, the Jazz a couple weeks ago, Oni just came out and, and killed them. Oh, Oni's so, scary defensively. I felt like he was knocking out threes in that game too, and just like completely changed how that game was. But yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think that this Jazz team, you know, when you look at it. You know, you've got that starting five of, of Conley, Bogdanovich, Mitchell, Gobert. Who's that for? I'm guessing Royce O'Neal is the fourth starter most nights right now. Yeah. Yeah, and then Royce Joe is. In anytime someone's hurt. He's key right. to this team. Uh, Royce is, is, you know, that kind of defensive linchpin, right? Like, yep. he's that guy that, that you can plug and, and he'll, you know, guard that best perimeter player. He's kind of like what Matt Barnes was to that 2010 Magic team, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you know, a guy that 
didn't necessarily need the ball a ton offensively, but he was going to go out there and work his ass off defensively and, you know, add a ton to the team there. Then you go to the bench, you know, you mentioned Oni. Jordan Clarkson is probably the sixth man of the year right now, if you ask me. You've got Joe Ingles. You have Derek Favors. You know, you, you can go 9-10 deep there and, and find, you know, Georgia and Yang has given them re- some really good minutes this year. You know, you can get that kind of comparison to those those Magic teams that could go 8-9-10 deep and get good contributions when they need it, especially that 2010 team that, you know, they went and they traded for Vince Carter. They traded for, they got Ryan Anderson in that trade also. They got a healthy junior Mount Nelson back. They signed Matt Barnes. They acquired Brandon Bass. So that, that 2009, 2010 Magic team, you know, went Jameer Nelson, JJ Reddick. Um, they didn't have Hedo that year, but they had Vince. They still had Richard and made the white. And then that bench, you know, with Ryan Anderson, you had Brandon Bass, you had Marjorie Gortat, you had Michael Petras, you had Jason Williams, you had so much. Like, they went 9, 10 deep to where they could still, you know, find guys that would be able to make that impact. Um, I think that's, that's the thing with this Jazz team is even when a guy's down, somebody steps up and make the, makes those plays. Um, and I think that that's really big for them. And, I like this jazz team. You know, they're, the West is, is always tough, and this year maybe ends up being one of the toughest years. You know, you've got that Lakers team that, you know, if Anthony Davis is healthy, is probably still the favorite. You've got the Clippers who are up and down, but seven games against Paul George and Kawhi Leonard is, is going to be tough if they go out and get, you know, so much is going to change over this next two weeks, Right across the entire league because what does Toronto do with Kyle Lowry? Do they try to get something or do they just, you know, let the rest of his contract go and and risk losing him for nothing in free agency? I think the Magic are going to be a big player this year in the trade deadline. I think they've got, you know, you have Evan Fournier who's going to be a free agent. You have Aaron Gordon whose name has been brought up a ton in trade. Brian's obsessed with Aaron Gordon. I love Aaron Gordon. I think he would have been the perfect addition for the Jazz if they hadn't signed Ilyasova. Because to me, that signing signals they're not going to mess with the rotation. So, okay, what would you have traded for Aaron Gordon? Bojan in a first. I think you're better off keeping Bojan. It's the defensive side of the ball that worries me with Bojan. He can be targeted in the playoffs. We've already seen teams start to do it. Uh, and I, and I really like Bojan. Don't get me wrong. I, I thought he was the perfect addition for the Jazz, but defensively, it, it was a weak spot. And I, I think the Ilya Silva signing kind of shores up the power forward position. He's not great, but he's a guy that for three games in the playoffs can give you important minutes and put the ball in the basket. But I, I so thought Aaron Gordon, if healthy, like, would be a big deal. Yeah, but the, the thing is, like you know. Gordon changes your entire offense if you acquire him because Gordon is not the shooter that Bogdanovich is. He's, he's a 36% he's be, you know, shooter. Come, okay, come on. Let, <laughs> we're not going to do this. He's going to get. Gordon is, he would get better <laughs> looks in Utah than he's ever had in Orlando. He's not a great shooter, but I think he's a good enough shooter. Teams would have to honor him, and the spacing would still be there. But it's it's he, a moot point. It's not going to happen it, this year. It is a moot point, but 
I'll respectfully disagree. Um, <laughs> You've I, seen you him know, more than I have. Yeah. I, the problem with Aaron Gordon is Aaron Gordon thinks he's a number one option. And I think that that was a little bit of the same problem that the Magic had when they had Tobias Harris, too, was he thought that he was a number one option. Victor Oladipo thought he was a number one option also. And it kind of clashed a little bit. Um, and we've seen how well Tobias Harris has played at that, like, kind of second, third option with the Sixers. I just, I don't think that Aaron Gordon improves that Jazz team over what Boyan Bogdanovich can. Because, you know, I think that what Boyan adds, yes, he's not a great creator off the dribble. He can create just enough. Aaron, the problem with Aaron is he tries to force things too much. You know, he'll get in trouble way too often when he's trying to, you know, take that next step and create a little bit too much and then He'll turn the ball over. I think Boyan's a little bit smarter of an offensive player. And yes, the defensive aspect is a is definitely a problem. But I think that we've seen some of those teams that have had guys that are, are defensive liabilities, quote unquote. You know, the Warriors. Steph was never a great defender, but they were always able to hide him on somebody. Yeah, that's true. That I think, is. I think I think that that's something that you can do with Boyan is don't hide him. You know. He's got length. Maybe he's guarding that power forward if you're playing like, wait, if you're playing Denver and they're starting Paul Millsap, like, why not throw Boyan on, on Millsap there? And then you can have Royce O'Neal out on the perimeter guarding, you know, a Michael Porter Jr. or even like a, a Jamal Murray, something like that. You know, it, it gives you options still. So I think that Aaron Gordon would change just the balance, I think, a little bit too much. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of if they ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, I, I don't know, man. Like, the Jazz won, what, 13 straight? 11 straight and then 9? 11? You win 11 and 9 no, straight, like, man, it, it, it's hard to tell me that something's broke there. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I do. Because things change dramatically in the playoffs. The pace slows down. It's slightly more of a, a half-court defensive game. Mm-hmm, yeah. But, but it, it ain't broke, man. You're first in that West. You're first playing against teams that have LeBron, Dame Lillard's playing out of his mind. Nikola Jokic is you know, probably a top-five guy for the MVP right now. You're, still, you're dealing with Kawhi and Paul George. I, I think you let it ride, man. The question with the Jazz ha- has yeah. been, do you take a, a big swing and go all in this year and push all your assets forward? Or do you let continuity play its role and hope that Bojan finds gets a little bit more comfortable? We had a Jazz beat writer on the other day, Sarah Todd, and she was talking about how Bojan's wrist surgery from last year is still still impacting him and it's been a lot more impactful than even he expected and it there's been a, a mental aspect to that as well and so i like i said i really like Bojan, and if he can continue to to work himself back from that injury he's only played like, you know 35 less than 40 games since he had wrist surgery so it's reasonable to think that he's still working back and uh, you know everything is already coming together we see how all the pieces work so I, I get both sides of the argument. In the end, I trust the Jazz front office uh, an awful lot. I think that Justin Zanuck and Dennis Lindsay are going to make the right decisions, and they're they're going to make 
phone calls and see who's available and, and what could be done. But I think that I trust them to make the best decision for this jazz team and the you know jazz teams of the future. I think that's definitely the uh, the right approach to have here because like as much as you want to be an armchair GM, at some point it, it, it reaches that point where it's better to just let the professionals do it because you know you might think that this is the best way to to do something, but I you know I've seen so many so many stupid ideas from people. Like, oh, let's go get X player, and we'll trade Y and Z player. I'm like, what? what why? Tell me, how does this make sense? How does this help the team now, but also help the team in three years? Yeah, there's a lot of people that value names more than they do the player's actual current game. <laughs> yes, and I, I think that that's one of the biggest things that some fans get themselves tied into is, you know, Ooh, this player could theoretically be available, and he does this really well. My team should go trade for him. I don't care what the price is. I don't care how much it might hurt my continuity this year. This could help us in three years. I, like I said, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this Jazz team definitely ain't broke. Like, I think that they're definitely a team that if you're playing in a seven game series. You're going to have to go through the wood chipper to beat. And that's saying something in that Western Conference. Well, Zach, can we uh, extend a formal invitation to you to jump on the Jazz bandwagon come playoff time? Um, <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny my <laughs> loyalty to the Jazz brand. Come to playoffs, um, whoever sends me the biggest care package of their local craft breweries will get my allegiance. <laughs> I might I'll be able to work night. on that. All right, Zach. Well, it's this has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you coming on the pod. Where can our listeners find your work? Yeah, you can find me um, on OrlandoPinstripePost.com. Um, admittedly, uh, this season has been kind of a wash for me so far between moving, the uh, being in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, I just got a, a fairly sizable uh, promotion at work. So a lot of my time has been you know, push forward there. Um, but hopefully I'll be, be able to kind of normalize things and get back into the game here as the season winds down. And uh, as I tell people that the Magic shouldn't tank, well, they, they should, but they're not going to because that's not the philosophy that they hold. Um, and, you know, they don't have a chance at Cape Cunningham right now because there are teams that are a hell of a lot worse than them out there. Yeah, yeah, there there really are. Well, um, yeah, so make sure, go check out Zach Oliver and his work with the Magic. Congratulations on that promotion, too. And Thank you me. can find me, Brian Priest, on Twitter at bpriest 24 That's at B-P-R-E-E-C-E-24. You can find Home Court Press at Home Court underscore press. And McKay, do you want to finch it out? You can find me at McKade P-8. That's M-C-C-A-D-E-P-A. You know what to do. And take note. Hey, take a quick look at Snyder. Now take a quick look at Spider. Since so wait, yeah, I've been a rider. Utah Jazz keep getting higher. Damn, all I can say now is whoa. Royce with the D, Royce with the O. One thing Jazz Nation gotta know. Clarkson's nickname is Pick-a-mode. 
Leave it on the road. Four more threes from Jiggling Joe. My breath stopped with Donovan gone. But Ingles came out looking like LeBron. Like, damn, Conley with the mightiest touch. Bogey drops 30. Yeah, that's clutch. Utah Jazz is doing their thing. My all-star vote, hashtag Niang. I do not like the Lakers. I just like D favors. Utah Jazz, they rock my socks. Go bear, I love you and I love all your blogs. Are we surprised? This is a year we collect our prize. 2021 Utah Jazz champs. Heard it here first. Now blast this jam like damn. It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tap a tap a keg, is the Egg Bomb crew just one by 30. What you gonna do like that? It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tap a tap a keg, is the Egg Bomb crew just one by 30. What you gonna do like? It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tap a tap a keg, is the Egg Bomb crew just one by 30. What you gonna do like? It's true, Utah Jazz is better than you. Tap a tap a keg, is the Egg Bomb crew just one by 30. Hold up, hold up. Coming wrong strong. Darvin, 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 Darvin,